As we turn to Exodus chapter 9, as I studied this, I was just so struck by when we study this passage, we can't help but see the judgment of God. We can't help but see the depravity of man. How can man not fall on their face before God? Plague after plague, how can that not happen? But when I study this, what I learn mostly is the greatness of God. Even among all the disaster you see, you kept seeing him. As Hayward led us through those songs tonight, I said, wow, I'm thinking, there's phrase after phrase in those songs that are in this text of absolute chaos in Egypt. Absolute chaos going on. And yet that's the greatness of God. But sin is, sin is horrible, brothers and sisters. Depravity makes people hate God causes them to hate God it just comes out from them some are more moral than others and would not phrase it the way others will but when the end comes you will see people weep and then that phrase that's used repeatedly mostly by the Lord Jesus Christ himself they will gnash their teeth it's a difficult saying but it's a saying that says hate it's full of hatred and anger and great threat against God in their own ways as they go to eternal damnation. And you'll see this in this text as the intensity of sin ramps up more and more as judgment falls on them, the intensity of hard hearts grows as well. And so there's this fierce godlessness. But in the middle of all this, you just see the glory of God. (laughs) He's so beautiful. Uh, He's got control of everything. It's easy to preach on hell and damnation at times when you look at these texts. But I couldn't help but think of the great passage we quote all the time for the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life and it's such a great reminder And as we go through this tonight, as I hurry down through quite a few verses tonight, I don't want you to lose sight that the gift of God is eternal life. If you reject them, damnation waits with all of its horror and terror and anger and fierce uh, rejection of God. That's all there. But they almost, that have bent the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, They will never see that. And I'm so grateful for that. So don't miss the greatness of God in this passage of judgment. Number one, we come to the latest of the plagues. It is the sixth plague, and it's boils. And so I try to talk about the physical and the spiritual in my points, if you have my notes in front of you. So number one, boils in an uncontrollable, hardened hardened heart boils in an uncontrollable hardened heart we'll look at verses 8 through 12 in these ones look with me at verse 8 and 9 then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron take for yourself a handful of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it towards the sky in the sight of Pharaoh and it will become fine dust over all of the land of Egypt and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all of the land of Egypt. Now, this is the first plague that directly impacts the physical body of the Egyptians. They are afflicted here in this text with painful sores. Not, not in most cases deadly, but painful skin condition here and I think it's more than an ingrown hair here and I think I can explain that however it seems that everyone living in the land of Goshen again is exempt from this (laughs) so again God knows how to judge the world but protect his children that's a great thought isn't it helps us understand future judgment now theologians are unclear which Egyptian god this, this might be challenging as each one of the plagues does and we believe it is challenging one. There is a god called Semek, Semet, I think is S-E-K-H-M-E-T 
She is a god with a lion head. She's a goddess with a lion head, but she, more importantly, was responsible for uh, epidemics and healing. So she could bring mass casualties, epidemics, onto people, or she could bring healing. So most of them attribute this to show that she's a dead god. Now, like the third plague, the sixth comes with no warning. Remember, each one of them, there's, a, there's three, they're coming in sets, and the last of the three always come with no warning. God just does it. And so the narrative is short as it describes this plague, but, but here you can see Aaron and Moses, they, they were to take this handful of soot from the kiln where they made bricks, where they, probably most likely where the Israelites were suffering under this slavery, making bricks, probably that kiln, and they were to take the soot and throw it in the air right in front of Pharaoh. So I, I think possibly what God was doing is he says take soot from the furnaces may be referring to this bondage that this nation had been under doing the heavy labor for these people. And so I think it reflects that things are gonna really flip here and that's what the Lord's been doing. The ones that have been under heavy, heavy burdens are now being exempted. And the ones who were exempted from heavy burdens are now under heavy burdens. Isn't that the case in life sometimes, though? You've heard me quote this quote a million times from Spurgeon because I love it. Spurgeon said, the only hell believers will see is what they experience on, on this earth. The only heaven unbelievers will see is the only thing they experienced here on this earth. Make, that makes sense? There are hellish times Christians go through. But that'll come to an end someday. And you can see that. They have been under for 400 years, been under the heavy hand of the oppression of the Egyptians. And it's all being flipped. So God loves illustrations, doesn't he? So he takes Moses and they grab this handful of this black soot from this kiln and they throw it in the air, and I think what the Lord is doing is he is showing that this is the density of this plague. It is going to be dense, and it's going to fall on everything. And the Bible says it covered the livestock and all the people. Now, we go, well, what does this look like? Well, maybe we get a hint in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 27. If you just look forward, let's turn a couple pages or a couple books here forward to that. Um, Luke 28. 27. Um, this is in the passages where they're just about ready to go on land. Moses is going to die shortly after this. He's given the last challenges, the last sermons to the nation of these now 40-year-olds because they were 20 and their parents all died off. They're about ready to go on the nation. He gives the, the, the blessing and the curses. If you, if you obey your God, here's what he has for you. <laughs> if you choose sin, the wages is death. It's all, God has not changed who he is. So in the middle of this, he talks about some of the wages of sin that would fall upon the nation if they were disobedient. Deuteronomy 28, 28, 27 says this, the Lord will smite you with boils of Egypt and with tumors and with scabs and with the itch. I don't even know what that could be and I'm scared already. (laughs) From which you cannot be healed. So, Many theologians think it's something similar to this, not just some ingrown hair that was bugging you. (laughs) This was devastating. And if this is similar, friends, if this is similar to what plagued the cattle in the fifth plague, this is like a black burning abscess (laughs) that won't heal all over your body. So this might explain why he told them to use the black soot. It's, it's that anthrax type of burning, of tearing and eating tissue away. It was miserable. Look at verse 10 and 11. So they took the soot from the kelm and just as uh, stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in, towards the sky and it became boils, breaking out with sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all of the Egyptians. So it's clear this was an immediate impact. This wasn't something you were waiting for. When he throws that soot up and and it starts to fan out, it seems to cover. 
And this is proven by the fact that these priest magicians who are monitoring, monitoring the plagues, trying to redo them, trying to protect Pharaoh in some way, they're hit so hard, so quickly, that they can't stand before him. And with all their evil, most likely demonic magic, they could not ward off what God was doing. The effects of the plague hit everyone. They were utterly, think about this, utterly immobilized before the power of God with a skin disease, so much that they could not stand physically in his presence. And so you ask the question, I mean, you would think, you know, he, you know where is this goddess now? Where is the gods of healing? Where, where are the gods to provide help? And, and what God is doing is he's showing they, they, lack, they lack power, they're dead, and obviously all of them have no help. And the whole nation had to look in some sense at what God was doing. He was mocking their gods. They had no strength to protect themselves. Look at verse 12 with me. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Though it was, though it was predicted in chapter 4 verse 21 that the Lord would harden the Pharaoh's heart. This is the first time that it's recorded. We're all the way to the sixth plague, and now we finally see that the Lord is saying, look, I'm hardening his heart at this time. And Pharaoh was, he's receiving this judicial judgment now for, re, for ignoring, saying to God, I'm ignoring you. I'm not dealing with what you say. I'm rejecting your word. And I'm going back on my own word when I'd say I would let the people go. God is now judging him. And I want you to think about this as I finish this point out. This dictator who repeatedly hardened his own heart against God is now deprived of the ability to do anything else. That's really fascinating. You've hardened your heart so long against God, now you can't do anything else. I, I think there's application here, friends, when we think about this. You want to mess around with sin? Boy, it'll harden your heart. And you'll find yourself so hard and so far away from the things of God and so twisting of who he is and fighting to exalt yourself as we'll see Pharaoh do, and you'll just be a mess. And we see this happen. Uh, many of us have family and friends or, or people we've known through, through time in, in our relationship with the church and whoever. We've seen people who fall into sin and won't repent of it and they just keep drifting farther and farther and farther away. And it is not that God cannot rescue. And he does do those things at the 11th hour. And only he, and then it becomes so evident that only he can rescue that person. But I think we see this over and over. He is, he is now so fallen into the depths of depravity that he has no other ability to do anything else but uncontrollably harden his heart against God. Second thought, the depravity of human logic against an almighty God. The depravity of human logic against an almighty God. Well, the seventh plague now is the first plague of the third group. And here, as we look at this in a minute, is, it's one of the longest descriptions of the plague outside of the 10th that, that shows, a con, again, a continual intensity. Remember, plague six is very intense. It's short narrative, doesn't give us a ton of description of what happened, but it's intense. This thing is scary. Uh, you think this coronavirus, this, not even close what those guys dealt with, with this anthrax type of skinny eating disease. But now... Now, in this plague, God is going to warn the Egyptians. It's very interesting. We'll see that he's going to warn the Egyptians here of what's coming to take shelter. But we'll also see that many of the Egyptians, just like Pharaoh, they will ignore it. The truth will come out, and they'll ignore the truth. Now, God once again exposes the ineffectiveness of the deities of, of Egypt here. Most likely the god that they're dealing with here is Newt, I think is how it's pronounced, um, was a goddess of the sky. She controlled the weather. She's got a problem. <laughs> a huge problem. 
She has absolutely no control of the weather. This was a dead God, but yet offered sacrifices to and worshiped as though she controlled the weather. So, so when it didn't rain and they went through drought and things, they had to try to appease her because doubtlessly she's mad, right? So if we don't get what we want, then God is mad at us. Or a God, in this case, is mad at us. But here, God is showing that she's dead, she has no control, I will do whatever I want with the weather. But before we get into that seventh plague, there is some wonderful things here in this next set of verses that displays uh, both the utter depravity of human logic and the greatness of an almighty God. Now look at verse 13 through 17, me, 17 with me and, and notice the strong warnings God is uh, reflecting in his attitude towards a stubborn Pharaoh. He has, he's giving strong warnings in his own way, right? He's, God is warning this stubborn Pharaoh. Look at verse 13 with me. Then the Lord says to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Now most likely Pharaoh um, is gonna come back down to the water. The Bible doesn't tell us in the narrative, but that's probably where they met just like was the custom Moses would meet him outside the palace as he was going to wash or, or worship down by the river. But Moses is, is to sternly repeat God's command here. Let my people go. They may serve me. Now, also, there's a clear distinction here between the God of Hebrews and the Egyptian gods. He's going to make that again. He's trying to prove that. Not trying, he is proving that. So look at verse 14 with me. For this time, so you tell him, you tell him the God of the Hebrews. He's separating the, the God of Hebrews from all the other gods. This God, the God of Hebrews, the God, says let my people go for this time verse 14 I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth did you just not sing that phrase just a few minutes ago didn't you so that's why I was encouraged by those songs he were picked out they reflect this now verse 14 before the introduction of the plague God God wants Pharaoh to know something that he that he is going to send these plagues against him, against you, Pharaoh, and your people. And notice the so that in the, in the text. I usually underline or circle so that's in my text because they're, they're, they're result clauses, right? So he says, so that you may know, you, Pharaoh, may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Not you, not any of your gods. So again, God is clar- clarifies the purpose of these plagues. He's, he, this is the purpose of them. First and foremost, I want the world to know who I am. I want the whole earth to know that there is no God like the God of Hebrews. And so Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, they need to recognize, God says, I want them to recognize that the Lord is supreme creator. He has dominion. He has unlimited power uh, in authority over all things. Second, he wants the Egyptians, the Egyptians to know God's power that he can take his people any time he wants them. I remember watching a good Western one day. The guy's super quick with a gun and, and one guy was smart enough in their group he goes, this guy can take us any time. <laughs> That's with God, he can take them any time. But he wants to prove something. You know, this is the verse, is the only time the word plague is used in the talking about the ten plagues. There's no other time in the scripture here. It's, it's the only time the word plague is used here in this reference as, he, as Moses reveals these ten plagues. However, one, one of the things that's very curious, and we can talk about this probably at another time, is the in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the, the Septuagint, that same word for plague is used over and over and over in the book of Revelation. God is going to pour out plagues on this world, and he knows how to separate his people. He does a great job at that. Now notice verse 14. This is a very interesting phrase that's used in here. For this time I will send all my plagues on you. 
Now, that little phrase, on you, it's interesting in the English. The, the Hebrew word is labay, labay is the Hebrew word. It actually is the word for heart. So here's what I believe God is doing here. I think the idea is that God is going to strike the heart of Pharaoh with this. He has struck him in many different ways, but now these last set of plagues, he's going to strike his heart. Even to the death of his oldest son. And though there will be uh, deadly outward consequences to his heart and his heart, this passage, I think what it's talking about is what I'm going to do is I'm coming after your inner being. I'm going to show you who I am down to your core, down to your heart. And so I believe this statement is referring to the hardening effects of Pharaoh's heart and that he will see that there is no God like him. Now, Pharaoh's desire for divine divinity that he thinks he has and power that he thinks is unique to him is, is a challenge here. So what he does is he has set himself up as a deity, as, as a god, right? And you think, well, well that's kind of crazy. How many people do this? Well, you know, isn't that exactly what Satan did with Adam and Eve in the garden? I gotta think about this. Isn't that exactly what God did? I mean, Satan did with God's highest creation. That's what Satan does. He comes into the garden. He takes Adam and Eve and he tempts them in the garden. He, he provokes them to be autonomous. Be free from God's control. Act like you are God yourselves. You can be like God. See, that's his temptation. And I think like Adam and Eve, Pharaoh will see the enormous the enormous mistake of what he did. Oh, Adam and Eve must have regretted that. Oh, for a long time. And so here, when you think about Pharaoh, he has done the same thing. He has longed to be like the God. And the enormity of the problems that come with this are incredible. As we study God's attributes, you just have to see God's attribute here in Exodus And throughout the Bible, we realize, listen to this, there is nothing more important in life than having a true understanding of God and a true understanding of yourself. I think they go hand in hand. If you don't know know yourself, if you don't realize that you're a sinner, God will always adjust God to be in in a way that you can accept him and justify your sin. So one of the greatest things... I think we have, one of the greatest things I think we have, which encompasses the gospel and all of that, right, is that God has opened our mind and our hearts and all of our strength and being to knowing him. It is the greatest gift that you can know God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because when you know God, if you know the God of the Bible, you will have to know yourself. (laughs) Right, I, 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 I encourage you, Go look at the attributes of God. Go look into the mirror and look into the mirror of the attributes of God and I bet you come away and go, oh Lord, I don't deserve you. See, that's what it does. And this is God's plan to show that there is none like him. Look at verse 15 with me. For if by now, listen to the statement, for if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. I mean, this is a stunning statement, isn't it? It's a display of the mercy of God in the repeated warnings he gave to Pharaoh. If I would have done this, you would not even be here. I have the ability to take you out. And yet, yeah, this is a great, this ties into, Jeremiah talks about this, we certainly see in the New Testament. Where does the clay have the right to tell the potter what to do? And yet that's what Pharaoh, and that's what we do at times. And so you see this logic of human depravity. Oh, that won't happen, or God's really not like that. You see Pharaoh, I'm going to get out of this somehow. You're going to see in the end of this, he, he, is, he is not repentant. I'm going to prove to you that, because a lot of people stumble over this passage as we get down to what he seems to say, I've sinned. I'm going to show you that, that that's not true repentance. There's a lot of people that stumble over this passage. 
because they, they don't understand what true repentance is, what God is truly after. And, and yet we see the logic of human depravity. Well, if I just do this much, maybe I can get God's judgment off me. This, that's the logic of human depravity. Like if I do a little good, I won't suffer for eternity. I mean, look, they came up with purgatory, right? Come up with all kinds of fallacies and false truths of how God will judge and how he'll separate and what he'll do. So there's, there's, there's so much to learn as you study a text like this. this. The fallenness of human logic, how they come to God and they try to reason. Right now we're dealing with statements like this. Well, my Jesus cares about my gender and, and he's okay with that. that. I mean, we're dealing with that all the time. Listen, it, we, uh, Brian's down teaching our youth right now and it, there's some youth that don't want to hear it and have left and parents that are upset a little bit, I hear. We, we sent Brian down to our high schoolers to talk about this because churches won't talk about it. And, and, I, and I want to understand, you get down to Romans 1 and God gives you over and, and, or maybe your children are given over to their sin, you will hurt so deeply you can't even imagine. And yet we said, well, let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about what God says about man and woman and his choice of who is who. What a sad state of the church where they refuse to deal with these things. I love our crossroads ministry. Get around those guys, Hayward and Paul. They're dealing with this stuff. They're talking with our college and career students they're, they're trying to help them be ready. They, they, they're out there with work with these. Maybe some of our generation is going, yeah, they're, they're off their rocker. Not their generation. They're soaked in it. And instead, we, we as a church, well, we're just going to talk on the love of God. Can you imagine people going to hell someday and screaming back to the myriad of churches who said, you said God loved me and I, he would accept me any way I am. As they're ushered off to eternal damnation. It's my commentary. I don't know if that'll happen or not. But that's what we do. And so I, when I look at these passages, I have to be realize that the depravity of human logic. In, in here, here's Pharaoh. Well, I can get out of this. You're not going to get out of this. Verse 16. But indeed... For this reason, I have allowed you to remain. In order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Man, that's a strong conjunction, isn't there? Notice it starts verse 16, but. Look, I could have cut you off like that. I own all things. I own your breath. I hold your cells together. Everything is held by the power of my word in my hand. I could have just snapped you like that. But I got something bigger to do. I have a reason why I've allowed you to remain. What terminology there. And if there was any doubt, Pharaoh was still in control. I think this verse puts an end to that. You still think you got this handled, don't you? See, this verse conveys the ultimate authority, ultimate power over Pharaoh's mind, over his heart, and anything and everything else that's done on this earth, doesn't it? What a verse. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power, in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth. It is absolute authority that God claims here, and nobody else can claim that. Nobody. And yet Pharaoh tries, doesn't he? Notice that phrase, allow you to remain. See, this gives understanding that, that people are on this earth because God lets them exist. <laughs> and so many people will react to that statement. Well, who is he to let us re exist? He's God. <laughs> he made you. What, what a statement. So in other words, God is saying, I alone allow you to keep breathing. Look with me at Romans chapter 9. Exodus 9, Romans 9. Put them together, read them both. There's great truth here. Look at Romans 9 with me. I'm going to pick up the pace here. 
Romans 9, verse 15. For he said to Moses, and just think about what we just read, I have allowed you to exist. <laughs> verse 15. For he said to Moses that he is God, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You know how I many people just trip, stumble, and fall completely over that verse? Why? Why do they fall over it? Their view of God, isn't it? That, that view of God does not fit their view of God. So they trip over it, and they fall into the gates of hell. He says, look, I, I choose, I do that. And all of his choices and all that he does, he's perfect in everything he does. Look at verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on the mercy of God. Moses, Pharaoh, Aaron, you, me, it doesn't depend on any of those beings. It depends on God. This is why we're worshipers. Because you and I know what we deserve. This is what makes us worshipers, and this makes us share the gospel, doesn't it? Because you've been aware of where you're, you should have gone and where God spared you, so you can't wait to tell the next person, I hope. I hope it drives your evangelism. That's, see, that's where worship comes. It comes from doctrine. It comes from knowing God, knowing what he did. People don't share the gospel because they don't know God. The more you know him, the more you know the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more you see him exalted, high and lifted up. You can't wait to tell somebody because you know what he rescued you from. Now, look at verse 17. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, ooh, he ended up in Romans 9, didn't he? For this very reason, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And then verse 18, he wraps it up this way. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he hardens. And so what a fascinating text to understand that God has both control of life and he has both in, in control of salvation. And everything he does is perfect. So listen, friends and brothers and sisters, when we go through ailments and difficulties, I know it's hard. I'm, I'm a terrible sick person. Ask Gina. I'm either dying or it's the end of the life or, you know, you know us men, we don't suffer very well. But it's important to understand, to grasp this. When we go through difficulties, and it may not just be ailment, it may be relationships and, and other things, financial, all those other things that come, that God is still in control of these things. And his goal is that his name would be proclaimed. But so often we, we struggle with that, don't we? So back to Exodus 9, and, and I think the, the particular context of Exodus 9 and Romans teaches that Pharaoh's life was not taken, but divinely allowed to continue. It should have been taken. It deserved to be taken for what he had done, but God divinely let him Live and go through this to show the glory of God, the power of God, and that his name would be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Now, one more thought on this verse is that God is not a localized God. See, he didn't want them to go more than three days' journey because he got out of his jurisdiction, right? We don't have that. When, when, they took, when they took Jacob back to bury him, they got three days out of out of the jurisdiction of Egypt and there they had another service. Remember that? They had a huge memorial service. They got outside of that and so they had a, they had a Hebrew memorial service for, for Jacob before they buried him. But the point is, and I want to just, before I move on, I, I want you to understand, the gods of Egypt were localized. Pharaoh was localized. He, this, what he's showing you is, I, I got control of the entire universe. Oh, I need a hailstorm? Vroom. <laughs> need a little anthrax? Vroom. I can do it all. Now, I think this is what he means by saying, in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth, Israel from here on out is going to remember this. 
They're going to remember these plagues, and it's going to be a, a way of worship for them, a thing of worship for them. Just listen to these for the sake of time. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 22. Remember the passage? This is the love of the Lord God with all your heart and soul and your mind. Moses is preparing them to go into the land. But in Deuteronomy 6, 22, he says this. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders. And then he says this. Before your eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all of his household. So I love that. This is... Uh, we're going to get to Deuteronomy. We're going to preach the great sermons of Moses, and we're going to have fun going through that before they go on the land. But he says, look, before your eyes, you watch me do this. What a great reminder. Well, before your eyes, a little later in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, he says, you shall not be afraid of them. He's talking about going into the land and all these big, tall people that the parents did, were scared of, and they ended up dying in the wilderness before. He says, don't, don't be afraid of them. You, sh- you, will do well, you will do well to remember that that what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt in the great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to the people whom you are afraid of. What a statement. Look, I can handle this. Um, the next generation, I don't have time to take you to this, but passages like Psalm 78 and Psalms 105, these are passages they were supposed to teach to the next generation. And in those Psalms, they rehearse plague by plague to the children. They were commanded to teach the next generation. And for us, we're commanded that. That's why we pick out the songs we sing and we preach the way we preach. So you love God and you know him and you worship him and you honor him. And so we, like the psalmist say, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart and tell of his wonders. Tell of his wonders. Look at verse 17 just to end this little section here. Still, after all that, right? I I, I got your life in my hand. You would only be here if it wasn't for me. Still, God says, you exalted yourself against my people by not letting them go. The word exalted means you piled up. You got yourself up on high. It was used to building ramps over, over the siege uh, walls, go over them. You made yourself up high over my people. And I'm not gonna put up with it. Three, third thought. An unprecedented, an unprecedented storm reveals a new depth of depravity. Look at verse 18. Behold, uh, behold about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Uh, the word behold it has the idea, look now, look what's coming next. It, it points to a very dramatic, something that's dramatic coming, and, and it seems the hard heart of Pharaoh gets harder with the harder plagues, right? Just keeps rejecting God, but God here is predicting there is coming a storm that is not normal. It does not hail much in Egypt even to this day, and it had not hailed much then. So this is a predetermined, pre-announced, incomparable storm that God is about ready to bring on this nation. However, the Lord still acts in mercy. Notice what he does. He demonstrates his compassion by giving the Egyptians the opportunity to respond to this coming plague. Right? And maybe some of these people actually, because we know Egyptians leave with Israel. They become a little bit of a problem with them later on, but we know they leave, so some of them said, yeah, your God's better, we're gonna listen to him, and maybe some of these did this. Look at verse 19. Now therefore send, here's the warning, God says, now therefore send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety, every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, they will die. So I love this, God is, here's this unprecedented God bringing an unprecedented um, storm, and what does he do? He warns them of this coming. And, And essentially, I believe this is a call to act in faith. Believe the truth, believe God's word. Now, this time of year, most of the cattle would have been out grazing, we think this is somewhere in mid January, um, in summertime, they would graze them, and we do the same thing. You graze them during the early mornings and late evenings, and then, then they do what we, we kind of turn, you know, where's your cows? Well, they're all shaded up. So they would shade up in the afternoon. But this is not this time of year. It's, it's, it's January. They're out grazing all day long. So there's this command to go and get them and bring them in. Look at verse 20 with me. 
Now one, of, one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. So, so some of the, uh, the officials, they, they respond to this. They, they're getting smart, right? Well, let's see. Hit me once, hit me twice. Maybe the third time I better wake up. I don't think this is a statement as they fear God in a worshipful way. I don't believe that's what's being saying here. I just believe they heard there's a cat five coming and you better take shelter. And you don't have to be saved to know there's a cat five sitting out in the Atlantic and you better do something about it. Especially when you had three of them hit you in one year. I wasn't here for that. I always hear the stories though. Charlie, so on and so on, Right? You, you know, you don't have to be regenerated to go, oh uh, yeah, we better hunker down. So I think that's more the idea that's happening here. And so, but think about the, the economic fallout of these plagues is devastating now. Um, whatever slaves uh, are still around or able to, to work, they're, they're probably still recovering from their skin diseases and, and now they're told, get the livestock, get them the cover. Uh, and, and you go, well, didn't all the livestock die with this last anthrax? Maybe, maybe a lot of theirs were dead. Guess where they went and found new livestock to buy? From the Israelites. Guess who was cashing in on a difficult situation? Most likely, some of that probably happened. Now, look at verse 21 with me. But he who pays, paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. I think this verse shows that Pharaoh was not alone in his hard heart. So don't think, oh boy, Pharaoh, he's the hard-hearted guy. No, no, the Bible's telling us they all were hard-hearted. They're all gonna lose their firstborn in, remember the Bible's gonna tell us that there was death in every house. So this, this, yes, focuses on Pharaoh, but the whole Egyptian race rejected God. And so this fell on them. The word here again is labay in the Hebrew, and again it says, this is what it means, they, they did not set their hearts to obey God. That's, that's verse 21. They paid no attention. They paid no regard. I mean, that idea, that, that's that Hebrew word again used there. We, we kind of flush it out in English a little bit. But would, I would read it this way. They had, their heart had no regard for the word of the Lord. So they didn't do it. Now, look at verse 22 through 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky that hail may fall on the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire down from to the earth and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So, that, so there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of hail, very severe such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail also struck every plant of the field and, sh- and shattered every tree in the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. So here we go, verse 22, he's got the staff in the hand. I'm telling you, if I was an Egyptian, every time he picked that thing up, I mean, but your heart's hard, right? So you don't learn, you just keep doing stupid things. But this time, Moses has it. Aaron doesn't have it. Moses has it. There's, there's a change. Now, Moses is really coming to the leadership. He's finding confidence to speak, I believe, and act for God. But, but this verse also tells us that not only were the people in the livestock going to be affected, but now, now the crops are going to be affected. And in, here in verse 23 and 24, as you look at that, we see Moses obeys God, and the prediction comes true in this unprecedented hail and thunderstorm strikes this land. The, the word fire flash is an interesting word in the, in the Hebrew. Certainly it's lightning, but it's, it's translated balls of fire. It, and it has a lateral movement in the Hebrew. Means it's bouncing along the ground and taking out people. <laughs> this is the worst thing you could ab- ab- ever imagine. You're running for your life and hail's just taking people out. Lightning's flashing. Balls of fire are moving. I don't know if you, I think we're the number one lightning strike nation. But in the cattle world out in the high deserts, we have lots of dry lightning. No, the problem is we don't have rain with it, so we have fires out there. I was riding for an outfit one time and 
I, I noticed I had a bull down way, I mean, you can see forever there, you know, you're going, wow, there's a bull laying down out there. So I ride out there to go check on this prize bull of one of the owners that I was riding for, and he has a stripe down his back, about that deep in him, and he has no feet on him. <laughs> I sat, you know, we didn't have cameras and phones and stuff back then, you know, you ride, and I, always, I would give him my right arm now to have a picture of that. That lightning hit him so hard, it blew his feet off of him. <laughs> hey, uh, Todd, <laughs> you know that black bull you used to have? <laughs> he's about six inches shorter, and he's not alive. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I was reading this and studying this, I thought, oh, I remember kind of being scared. You know, this thing was still smoking, kind of. And I thought, oh, God, to be hit by that. And here are these people, they're running around trying to get their livestock in because they didn't believe the word of God, and God's rolling fireballs at them. Now, later in the Pentateuch, you'll see that lightning and thunder is always associated with the theophanies, the appearance of the Lord, and, and he's often on the mountain, and you see some of these things. But, but here it's with, it's with destruction. It's, it, it comes here with with this is me, I am bringing judgment on it. Notice in verse 25, the word all that is used in this verse here. These, these plagues nearly destroyed everything the Egyptians had. Look at that, all that they had. But he spared a few crops because he has a big storm of locusts coming. He needed something left. And so, verse 26, we begin to see that only in the land of Goshen, we're reminded that in the land of Goshen where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Now, you could say, well, look, Jean and I live six miles out here on 40, and there's times I'll call her and say, man, it's like coming down like cats and dogs. She goes, oh, the sun's out over here. You could, you could might say that. But how do, I, well, hold on, because Pharaoh's gonna get from the palace out of the city and not get killed by hail. It, he, ha, he has, he has, told his hail and told his lightning where to go. Isn't that what Isaiah says? He, or no, excuse me, Job says that he stores up snow and he has a place where he keeps his lightning. It's, it's amazing. So he knows where to strike and take these things. Now look at verse 27 with me. Then Pharaoh said to Moses and Aaron and, said, and he said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Now, this is such an important verse because so many people trip over this here, and I want to hit this real quick. Many think that God's unfair from this on, verse on. You'll see people say, well, I was about there. I said, you know, he, he's, tie, he's confessing and he's done, but God just keeps pounding them, right? This is what they'll say. Now, he uses the word chatta. Hebrew word for sin means miss the mark and all of that. But notice the phrase that's in your English. It's a very good translation. It says, sin this time. So Pharaoh is admitting that he has, in other words, had a mistake or a miscalculation of what God wants. That's, that's about the extent of this. Don't let people fool you with this. This is not a broken, repentant man. And nowhere is the Bible truly portraying Pharaoh as repentant. And even though he admits that he sinned, the story shows you he's gonna do what? Keep sinning. Repentant people battle sin, stop sin. They're in the battle. They, they know it's wrong. There's a total difference, right? And they begin to change. God begins to redirect and repentance has changed direction. So this is not repentance. He, he, he's not portraying that. And at best, at best, think about this, he believes he did something wrong and he's trying to, to hold some kind of dignity in this. Now notice he also says the Lord is righteous. And I think this is a bit misleading to people at times, this statement, because Pharaoh was not talking about God's attributes of righteousness here. He's not saying, oh God, you're righteous, and, and I'm not, I'm unrighteous. It's merely a small confession pertaining to this judicial confrontation he's in. He goes, yeah, I, I, you might be right. I, I could have been wrong on this time, on this one. Meaning, yeah, I technically didn't obey the law of God, but it's not that big a deal. Stop this, God, please. So Pharaoh's not come to true repentance. But he, look, he is smart enough to know. We're around seven now. Let's see, if I ask Moses not to do this anymore, he'll go do it. There's no repentant heart here. Look at verse 28 with me. 
but make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Pharaoh knows the drill. This time, I'll confess a little more, the, the intensity of the plagues a little more, so this time I'll confess a little more. Um, but notice that phrase, God's thunder and hail. The, the qual is the word um, for for thunder here, it means voice. <laughs> so he goes, will you turn off God's voice? Can you imagine the, how loud it must have been? You know when one hits, hits close to the house and it just rattles the house? Can you imagine that nonstop, just constant, this constantly rattling your nerves to the end? Bam, 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 just, just unlimited thunder and lightning hitting constantly. No wonder he's saying, turn off God's voice, please. Turn it off. And then he makes a statement, I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Isn't that interesting? It seems the language of the three-day journey for the religious festival in the wilderness is gone. Pharaoh's making no mention of the return here. He doesn't say anything about their return here in verse 28. And I think he now knows that God's agenda was to remove these people from him. But still, Pharaoh says, I'm going to grant you. This is, see, this is why he's not repentive. I'm going to grant you to go. You will not stay here any longer. Oh, that's not what God's after. Look at verse 29 and 30. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out to the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. Thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, that you may know that the, Lord, that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. So he says, Moses says, look, as soon as I got out of the city, I think this is an interesting statement. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's fireballs rolling around. He's, he's, that probably tells us that he's in the palace, but he's gonna go all the way out of the city, maybe to the land of Goshen. I don't know where he's going, but he's getting out of the city. That means he has to walk through all of that, that everybody who else is outside is what? Dying. <laughs> I don't know if he's like Mary Poppins or something, and it's all raining over, and he just kind of... God somehow miraculously protects Moses as he walks out of the palace because the Bible says it doesn't stop till he prays. So he walks through this extraordinary storm that nobody else can survive. There's Moses doing that. And I think as you see Moses lift up his hands in, in, in these verses here in 29 and 30, we see this great distinction between his faith and humility that he has to God against the pride and arrogance of Pharaoh. And I also think it's reasonable to believe that Moses' faith was so strong that he knew God would protect him. So he walks out into this storm. Now, one last thought here in verse 30. Look at this. He says, I know. Moses, some people have read this and said, well, is Moses dumb? Oh, no, no. He, he is no longer questioning God anymore. Okay, God, we'll go tell him about the hail and, the, and all that stuff. What are we gonna do next, God. See, he's, he's not naive here at all. He knows. And I think Christians who believe, listen to this, Christians who believe God's word, we are not easily deceived. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect and we can figure everything out. But if you know God's word, you don't easily fall under deception. You, you, you smell something. You go, uh, that does not line up. I know my Bible. The Bible says this. So one of the things that's very important here, and I think we realize, is Moses knows God's word. He's not easily deceived. He has great discernment. And Christian, if you read your Bible and you believe your Bible and you obey your Bible, you will be able to handle the pharaohs of this world. You'll, you'll sniff out things. And that's in relationships and finances and, and, and all the other things that go on. You'll know God's word. You'll have discernment. And I think that's a problem within Christianity today. Notice there at the end, he says, in verse 30, he says, the Lord God. This is the only place since Genesis 2, 2 and 3 where he puts a double name of God together because he knows Pharaoh's small confession is not repentance. He does not know the Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God that he knows. And he's setting the distinction out from the Egyptian gods. We're just about done here. Just let me finish these last few verses. These are quick here. Verse 31 and 32. Now the flax and the barley were ruined for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the smelt were not ruined 
for they ripen later. This is very helpful for the timing of the plagues. It's probably mid-January when they would harvest this. Flax was used for making clothing. Barley was the, the exceptional grain that you kept. That was the better grain. You made your bread, you made your brew, you, made your, you, you fed your animals. That was the most important one. And, and the Bible says it was in the ear and in the bud. So that means it's ripe and ready. And that hail hits that. I don't know if you've ever been in a very ripe grain field. You can just slap it and the grain will fly out of it. And when grain grows, and I love, we grow tons of barley because it had a lot of protein in it. We'd get our, get our cattle through very cold winters. And, and as I got ready to cut it, I'd watch the sugar kind of come up the, up, up the uh, stalk of it. And the stalk starts turning color. And when you get out there, you, you, you grab your barley and you squeeze ahead and it shoots you know, I shoot it on the kids all the time. It's this milk. Too early. Can't cut it. It'll be bitter. And it, and it won't come out of the head. And then it gets to a dough. And just about the dough, that's when we hay it. That's for hay. If you're going to take barley and make bread out of it and brew and all the other things that you would feed for grain, you let it get to where you can slap it and it falls apart. And that's, that's what happened. This, 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 what they, I mean, they probably had all their shears ready to go, sharpened. We're ready to take this barley down. And guess what God does? Uh, yeah, your cash crop, gone. Because I control the weather, and I do as I please. Now, the wheat and smelt here, that's an interesting different round. I don't have too much time on that, but wheat was a cheaper, um, barley was better. They outsourced or they, or they traded, exported a lot of wheat. Um, it was, the smelt is a bearded wheat. You know the difference between non-bearded and bearded? Bearded has all the sticky stuff all over it. It's, it's, it's cheaper, it's easier to grow. It grows in droughty times. Um, that's still not there, but he's got some locusts coming for that one later. Verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord and the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured on the earth. So out of the city, he's away from Pharaoh. This all took time, right? Maybe Pharaoh's going, just stop it right now. He goes, well, you know, I'm gonna go out of the city and take care of this. So that means for whatever long it took for Moses to walk from the palace all the way out, number one, he's protected. He has some kind of shield around him. He doesn't die. And number two, they had to suffer with that noise and just that pounding and, and death that was happening all around them till Moses walks out. And so Moses did as he said, and God stopped the plague. And I think that shows the connection God had with Moses. And you'll see this over and over. People will come up and, and challenge Moses. God had a unique connection. That's why Moses is, is certainly a type and reminds us of Christ. And the storm stops while Moses is praying. It seems, right? Doesn't it seem that in verse 33? He went out and spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail and the rain all ceased. Verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so just like Moses, predictable, godly response, go to God, put his hands up, turn to God, so Pharaoh is so predictable. And, and friends, when you deal with people who are trapped in sin, who refuse to acknowledge God, you can almost predict their next move. Sin has a trail. It'll lead you, and it's leading you to a trail of death, and you can go, this is what, friend, this is what's gonna happen. If you do not turn from your sin, this is what's coming. You can plead with them. It's predictable. Notice he uses this term, he sinned again. Chada is the Hebrew word again. It's just rebellion. He just rebels. His heart is hardened. The whole idea is it's like a stone. It's heavy. There's no life to it. It's a heavy, cold, hardened, weighed down with sin heart. And notice this, he and his servants. So let me, let me close with this. If you want to live in sin, you're going to affect people around you. And people say, well, Christians, they too often pull away from people in sin. I go, yeah, we're supposed to. It doesn't mean we don't love them and we don't take opportunity to try to bring them to Christ, but we don't get in and participate with them. Sin always jumps on everybody else. It, it destroys, and it, you get next to it, and you don't want to deal with, well, I have this friend, and they're, they're into this, but oh, I'm not. Guess who's going to be in it later? Don't mess with it. And that's what happens here. It isn't just Pharaoh's heart being hardened. All of he, he and his servants Wickedness always influences others. 
And then finally, verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And so here's the agricultural, the mainstay, the economy of Egypt is wiped out. The economy is collapsing in front of them. And all he is concerned about is his own power, his own welfare, his own person, and his people are suffering. And that's what sin will do. And I've, saw, I've seen it too many times. When you fall into sin, guess what? You really don't care about too many people around you. You become the me monster. And, and people suffer. So this, remember, this is about certainly sin and wickedness, but this is about greatness of God. When you lay down tonight, and you, or, or the next time you hear a thunderstorm, I hope you remember this passage. I hope you remember God's throwing fireballs at people. And I hope you, you, in a way, have an awe of God, a fear of God that's a healthy fear. Oh, God, you are God. There is none like you, as we sang today. There's none beside you. I bow my knee only because Jesus Christ died and brought me into your presence. I give you all the glory. Amen. Father, thank you for this time in the word. We're so blessed to look into the depths of your scripture. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for protecting us while we live in a world full of pharaohs. You protect your children. You love us. And though you pour judgment out at times to judge sin, you protect us. And we may feel some of the effects of that, but you are a good God to your children. You're a great father, a good father. And we love you for that. Thank you for reminding us. Help us love you more. Help us know you more. And we'll have discernment for your glory to walk in this world. May we be proclaimers of, your, of this great God we've read about tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.